Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. We got to move this morning. We got a lot of ground to cover. So if you're new with us, um, we are walking through as a church through the book of Titus. So if you have your Bible, go ahead, open that up. We're going to be in week three of it, but still in chapter one. Um, The letter to Titus, by the way, is the only letter in the Bible written to a church planter, which makes this one resonate with me, right? It's a pretty special one. For those of you newer around Mercy, we're still a pretty young church, about two and a half years old, just planted in September of 2015, coming up on our third birthday this September, and it's going to be an exciting one. But Paul is writing this letter to Titus, who's kind of his spiritual son in the faith, and he's out there doing his thing, trying to plant this church. And what he's trying to do, what Paul is doing, is he's passing along to Titus what he thinks are the most important things that a a church plant, a new young church, needs to believe and the most important things they got to live out so that they can establish a church family that will together believe the gospel and live out the gospel for the long haul. And we've said that's our our theme in the series is believing for the long haul, not just to believe, but even in believing they will multiply their influence across the known world as they take what they learn here through this letter, as Titus teaches it to them, they take what they learn, and then they go and they teach it in the marketplace, in their jobs, in their communities, in their neighborhoods, everywhere they go. And so we're looking in here saying, all right, what do we need to do as a church to to grab hold? What do we got to grab hold of so that our faith isn't just something that's kind of like a an emotional roller coaster where we have a spiritual high moment. We talked about this before, but then we dip back down. We go through a low season, and so we go off to a conference or to some other thing. We get a, a really high moment and then back down again so that we're not on that roller coaster, but instead we get a deep abiding relationship with Jesus that lasts for the long haul. That's what we're going after. That's what we're seeing as we walk through the letter. Now, Titus was planting this church in, a, in an island called Crete. And we haven't really talked about Crete yet, but today it's going to come up. Crete was, listen, most, just about all historians agree, one of the most immoral places in all of the ancient world. It was Las Vegas of the ancient Mediterranean. Okay, in fact, actually, that's not even fair because it was an island that um, was also known as a hub for piracy. So it was more like Tortuga, okay? For those of you that get the, it'd be like planting a church with the cast from Pirates of the Caribbean, okay? That's what he's trying to do here. So, or maybe Myrtle Beach. I don't know, whatever connects with you, right? But historians say these people, they, they lived, just constantly stayed drunk. Lying was, cele- was celebrated as like, almost like an art form. In fact, in Greek, the word to lie was to crete, right? So you would say, you know, hey, that's not true. You're creting or something like that. I don't know. But the, the historian Polybius, he said there was nowhere in the ancient world with more corrupt politics that tilted public policy towards those already in power than in Crete. It was a rough spot. See, what makes this letter, so what I love about the Bible is how relevant it is. What makes it so relevant to you and I is Paul is trying to teach 
how to live out the Christian faith in a difficult and immoral place like Crete, where Christianity is belittled and it's mocked, and there are a ton of other worldviews out there. That's what Paul is writing to. He's writing the gospel into and saying, here's how you live in that space. How do you build your life on something? Build your whole life onto something that the world around you sees to be a silly myth. That's what he's focusing on and really what we're covering today. Last week, we talked about elders. Those are the guys that lead the church, and primarily, we talked about who they are, right? Out of the eight pages I had in my notes, looking back over it, seven pages of that was just character, right? Who are these guys supposed to be? Elders go first in faithfulness, in their home, and in leading God's people, and then we ended with their job being to teach what is right, refute what is wrong. And that's where we finished in verse 9, just a little, began into that just a little bit. Today, we're going to see why that job is so colossally important. Because in the passage we're about to read, verses 10 through 16, Paul is going to say there are a lot of false teachers and a lot of false teachings out there. And in today's passage, he's going to expose those false teachings. And that's going to be big because the dangerous thing about false teachings is that you can become so convinced by them so subtly that when the truth is told to you, the truth could actually seem absurd. For example, I hear some recording of a computer voice Tuesday saying the word Yanny, okay? Very clearly to me. And somebody asked me, hey, what'd you hear? And I said, well, Yanny. And they said, well, actually, it's saying Laurel. And I said, well, do you mean that the translation of Yanny into the English is Laurel? Because obviously the audio coming out of the speakers that I'm listening to is Yanny. And they said, no, the audio coming out is Laurel. And then my head exploded in rage, right? So I'm like, that can't possibly be true. And then the overwhelming evidence is revealed to me, and I spent an hour of my life researching and learning about audio engineering, right, and the depths of Google that I should never go, and I'm forced to realize that my perception of reality is off because the evidence has revealed that the original recording is actually Laurel. And that's so bizarre, I think I need a head scan. If somebody listens to the sermon like five years from now, it's going to make absolutely no sense, but... That's the cultural moment of the day. Um, Look, today we're talking about false teaching, and what I got to ask you to do is just to be open to the fact that there may be a false teaching, a false gospel that you might, a false version of the gospel that you might be living by and you don't even know it. But the great news is unlike the little Yane versus Laurel conundrum that hit us this week, you can hear the true gospel today, compare it to what you've been living by. But that's going to take humility, so I'm asking all of us to be a little bit open to what Paul has to say here. So I'm going to walk through the passage, and just going to show you what he's saying in these verses to us. Then we're going to lay out how we expose false teaching, kind of what are the hallmarks of false teaching, and then how do we preserve true teaching, all right? So let's get in. Verse 10, here we go. Paul says, for there are many rebellious people. Remember, the, verse 9 was, make sure the elders... Hold faithful to what is taught, right? And rebuke what's, uh, hold faithful to the true gospel and make sure to rebuke what's not true. And then verse 10, for there are many rebellious people, full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. It is necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. See, there were people in their day, and there are people in our day, whose aim is to take people away from the faith. That's their goal. Verse nine, 
Remember, that was his job was to appoint elders remaining faithful. Why? Because false teachers aim to take people away from the faith. They were rebellious, he says, which means they stir up dissension in the church. They readily reject church leadership. They actively encourage others to resist church leadership as well. Instead of talking with their leaders, they try to gather people for their cause. And while it's under the mask of concern, it's actually rebellion. And he says they're full of empty talk and deception. That means they can talk a good game. You ever known these kinds of people? I know I have. They talk a good game. They can convince others to join their cause, but their lives aren't marked by genuine love of the Lord or commitment to him. Just empty talk. And then, it, and then he says, he calls out, he says, full of empty talk, deception, especially those from the circumcision party, which is an odd term because I know what circumcision is. It's not a party, right? So what's he talking about here? He's talking about the Jews that have come around the church in this time. And they come from a background where there are a lot of laws, okay? A lot of laws that have been added to the laws of the Old Testament. And these Jews are struggling through this idea that all you need is God's grace in order to find salvation. And the only way you can get God's grace is by faith in what Christ has done for you. See, the gospel is going to be important today. This is a write it down because it's going to, you're going to see how it contrasts against false teaching. The gospel is grace alone through faith alone, right? So God gives you his grace. That's his acting on, not because of anything you've done. It is his grace alone that saves you. And the only way you receive that is by believing in it, not by doing things to earn it. Grace alone through faith alone. And some are teaching a gospel in this context, it says you need Jesus and you need to be circumcised, circumcised in order to be approved by God. And Paul says they got to be silenced. And that might sound strong, but look at what's at stake. They're pulling households away and they're doing it for their own personal gain. Y'all, in another spot uh, over in 1 Timothy, the other young pastor he talks to in the New Testament, he actually ups the language about these false teachers even more. People in their culture and in ours and in our city, maybe even listening here, I don't know. They have been deceived by the demonic, he says, and are now led by evil spirits. And you're like, whoa, demonic, that's a bit far. Well, we don't use that language a lot, so it might sound like I've jumped the shark a little bit there. But look at what he says in 1 Timothy 4 to to Timothy. He says, the the spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some are going to depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. There are some humans they are going to pay attention to that through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. Same people that Titus is talking about. They forbid marriage. This is where you get into the laws that they're starting to espouse. Forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. See, what happened in this situation he's coaching Timothy in is that some people were adding religious laws onto the gospel. And that is always a false gospel. Listen, right now, Jesus plus anything equals a false gospel. You got to catch that because that's what Paul is going to war on here in this last part of Titus. That's what he sees these Jews doing. They were putting boundaries on something that God had not put boundaries on. They were saying, if you want to be acceptable to God, you need Jesus, but you also need to be pure in dietary laws over in Timothy. Same thing in Titus. They're preaching a Jesus plus you got to be circumcised gospel. It's a half grace, half works gospel. And Paul calls a Jesus plus anything gospel demonic. 
And sometimes, I know, we reserve that word for like a candlelit room and a Ouija board, right? That's the only way we think about that. But Paul's saying, no, the gospel is grace alone through faith alone, and anything that adds to that is a false teaching. And the goal of a false teaching is to take people away from Christ, which is the goal of the enemy, and therefore that false teaching is demonic. And listen, I know that church has gotten a bad rap in the past for sounding condemning when it thinks of and talks of false teachers and teachings. I want to challenge that by suggesting this is more like God the Father loving you enough to show you something harmful that you just weren't aware of. And if you knew what it really was, you would run from it too. See, what Paul is doing is he's saying, God loves you. And in his love for you, he offers you the most abundant life you could ever imagine. But false treat teaching tries to deceive you and turn you away from that love. So in, um, in college, my freshman year, I, I almost, almost went headfirst into one of those um, pyramid schemes. You know, talking about like, um, they told me, they said, hey, you can get rich quick. And I was like, awesome. I would like to do that in that timeline, right? And then my dad came along. I told my dad, because I had to get two friends, but then we're going to have to get two friends and get two friends. So I was like, okay, well, I'll talk to my dad. And my dad says, son, listen, these people are preying on your youthful ambition, and you can't see it, but they actually don't care about you. I'll never forget him sitting down in their living room telling me this. They want to use you so that they can get rich themselves. It's illegal. And as your dad, I need you to trust me and run from this, even though right now it feels like it's going to be really awesome. And I had that moment where I was like, you know what? That's fine. Like, I haven't put my $100 deposit in or whatever I was supposed to do yet. So sure, I'll, I'll run away. And about three years later, I saw them on the news for being in jail, right? So it's just kind of, that ended up, good job, dad. But listen, that's kind of like what, what's happening whenever God's exposing false teaching. He's saying, no, no, I don't want you to be deceived by something that sounds good, but will actually destroy you. John 10, 10, the thief comes to, this is Jesus's words, only to steal and to kill and to destroy. But Jesus comes that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so today we're exposing false teaching because it might sound good, but its ultimate aim is not to care for you. It is to use you. And we're going to see more of that. God's love is the only love that will ever satisfy your soul. And Paul is a spiritual father telling Titus, guard against all these other teachings that will pull people away from the one true love they're created for. Now, back over to Titus. Look at our next two verses, uh, 12 and 13. He starts talking about the two ways, two kind of most common ways this false teaching appears in Crete. Verse 12, one of their very own prophets said, as Paul talking about, he said, Cretans, and he's quoting that prophet, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul says in verse 13, this testimony is true. For this reason, rebuke them sharply so they may be sound in the faith. Tell us how you really feel, Paul, right? What's he doing? He's quoting a, a Cretan philosopher from a couple hundred years earlier named Epimenides. And he's saying, look, I'm not saying this about the Cretans. They're saying it. One of their own guys said it about themselves. I'm just saying he ain't wrong right? They were proud of their reputation in Crete, like what happens in Crete stays in Crete kind of thing. This, the, this is the first false teaching. Verse 14 is going to reveal the second one. This one's a little more obvious. This false teaching is that obeying the desires of the flesh is better than obeying God. That's the expression of the false teaching that was happening in Crete, and it's just not true. We'll see that you know this, many of you know this, obeying the desires of the flesh, giving yourself into the desires of the flesh may seem good in the moment, 
but it never yields long-term, long-haul soul satisfaction. It leaves you empty. It leaves you needing and craving more of it to satisfy you, which is how you know it's not designed for your good. It's just using you, right? But it always proves false. Now, the second false teaching is more subtle. See, as a Christian, we are called to be, and definitely the early church was, called to be distinct from the culture. And so they saw the moral debauchery of Crete, and there's a tendency for them to think, as long as I'm not like them, right? I'm going to separate myself from this culture, and then I'll be good. But the question is, how do you separate yourself from culture? Because part of that is right. You're going to choose to obey God and not, not the desires of the flesh, but how do you separate yourself from culture? Going to church doesn't separate you from culture. A lot of people think I'll go to church, and same in this day, I'll go to church, and that'll make me different. And Paul's saying, no, 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 it's not church attendance that separates you. It's sound doctrine that separates you. If you are in the church but under false teaching, that's just as bad. That's what he's after in verse 14. So that they may not pay attention to Jewish myths, that's the circumcision stuff that he's been talking about, and the commands of people who reject the truth. The danger for the early church is not just that Cretans are partiers. It's that there are people in the church who are peddling a half-grace, half-works gospel. And that is more dangerous than some permanent spring breakers in the community. In fact, let me say right here, false doctrine in the church is just as bad for you as any sin that exists outside the church. In fact, because it's cloaked in religion, it's probably worse. So let's, let's think about this. Why does Paul need to say this? Again, we all think, we hear false doctrine, we think we can never believe that. False doctrine sounds like a, a lame bad guy in some movie, right? We would never buy it, never be deceived by him. So let's ask the question about this half grace, half works gospel. Why do people eat this up? Because as long as there has been church, there have been people eating up this false gospel. It's far and away the most deceitful one that exists. Why? The one simple answer is pride. It's pride. We love the idea that we can do something to control our standing with God. We love it. And we keep leaning back into it. If we follow the rules and do the things on the checklist, then we can play a role. We can have some sway in our standing with God and we can make it to where God actually owes us. So follow this thought pattern I'm about to show you. Paul is warning big time against that and he's saying, listen, the same thing happens to many people today. We get the idea that we are good, okay? Here's what happens. That's how this works out. We get the idea that we're good people, and wickedness, badness, evil, that's over there somewhere, right? And so what we do, we, we, start, we see the laws of God, the Christian ethic and moral code, we see it as something that builds a fence between us and the wickedness, and it keeps the wickedness from climbing over and getting into me. And as long as I stay on my side of the fence and do the good things, I'll remain good because of what I do, and the wickedness won't get me, and therefore God approves of me. But y'all listen, a fence isn't built just to keep things out. It's built to keep things in, too. I got a friend, um, he's a fellow pastor. We were in seminary together, served on staff together at a church. His name's Andrew Hopper. And that guy, um, when we were in seminary, he, would raise, uh, he was raising pit bulls, all right? So he lived out on kind of a farm, and he had these. We went, I'll never forget, go over to his house um, one day, and my boys were only like two and three at the time. 
And we go over, we go into his backyard, and he's got these um, fenced-in kind of kennels set up. And there's this one that was just a, I mean, it's a 100-pound pit bull with the, a head just the size of uh, that drum. I mean, it was a massive dog, right? And we're sitting there walking around, and my boys are like, they love dogs. So they're like, oh, hey, we're going to go up. And Andrew says, boys, there's one rule. Do not put your hand on or in that fence. Now, why? Was Andrew afraid that my two-year-old and three-year-old were going to harm the dog in the fence? I don't think so. I think that dog is just fine. I, in fact, the reason that fence was up was because Andrew was not afraid of anything getting in there and harming the dog. The dog was going to be just fine. Fences aren't just designed to keep things out. They're designed to keep things in, too. And listen, we have a fundamental misconception of the law, of God's Christian moral ethic that he lays out in Scripture when we think that the law is there to keep bad wickedness from climbing over the fence and attacking me, who is good. No, the laws of God are there to restrain what is already wicked within me from getting out into the world and causing harm to myself and to others. The only way we get to God has done some good things and I have done some good things for me is to have the misconception that I'm not already completely wicked and stained by sin. That if I just stay on my side of the fence, I'm okay. But Romans 5 and 6 says, listen, we're already sinners. All of us have this rebellion. You know, I know you know this to be true. You have this rebellion, this rebellion against authority, right? That's down lurking in your soul, that evil that wants to come out. If you want some proof, you need to go spend some some time serving in our two-year-old room, okay? Here at church. Why? Because two-year-olds are just mobile enough to express their rebellion to authority, right? But not self-aware enough to be able to like be sneaky about it. Just very open with it, right? We're all that way. And we act on that sinful desire in us and that sin stains us and makes us defiled in God's eyes. So you see verse 15, Paul says, to the pure, everything is pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing's pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. They claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So the question is, how do we become pure? He's talking about to the pure, everything is pure. So there's a way to get there. How do we get there? You don't become pure in God's eyes by just staying on your side of the fence. You're already defiled. So how do you become pure? That's where the gospel comes in and answers us. Jesus, who is the only one who was ever actually pure, ever actually sinless, he became defiled so that we sinners might become pure once again. Jesus was pure and holy, and he came to take our place so that we might become holy and pure. That's why 1 John 1, 9 and 10 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And look at the verb there, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But listen, if we say that by being over here on this side of the fence, we have no sin. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. We, we, we nullify the gospel because that's not the gospel. To say we have not sinned is not the gospel. We make him a liar. His words are not in us. The way God cleanses you from your sin, which this is the core hope of the gospel message, is that you admit you're a sinner deserving of death, and then you accept as true. You accept it as true that Jesus was on the cross in your place. We call this, I've told you this before, C.S. Lewis calls this the great exchange. 
that you who deserved death because of your sin, you get life, Jesus's life. And Jesus who deserved life for he had not sinned, he takes on your death and you get life. He cleans you. He cleans you. And that's where, listen, that's where some of y'all are. Praise God for that. You believe this, you're growing in this gospel and you need to celebrate it. In fact, listen, John 8, 36 says that the son has set you free. You are free indeed. There is a celebration tone in the New Testament. In fact, man, we believe this is why the tone on Sunday mornings here at Mercy Church needs to above all be celebrating that we have found freedom in Christ. He is our living hope as we just sang. So hallelujah, hands up, thank you, Jesus, and amen, because we were dead in our sin and God made us alive. All on him, nothing on us, praise God. But listen, that's not where all of you are. Some of you still think you're good. You got decades of Disney telling you to follow your heart, okay? And listen, while Disney makes great movies, great music, it's got terrible philosophy and theology, okay? Your heart is wicked. It deceives you. It's twisted and selfish. It will run you down a road that will pull you away from God himself. If you think you are good on your own, you are still believing a half gospel, half works and that is false teaching. You are not good on your own. That might be a bummer when you first hear it, okay? But I think it's actually freeing to you because it means you don't have to clean yourself up to be accepted by God. You gotta lean into that. I watch Christians struggle with this. Here's what happens. They drift into sin, and I almost know it because they drift away from church when they drift into sin. Why? Because down in their heart, one of two things is happening. Either they think their sin is no big deal, right? That's that first false teaching, they think they're just going to obey the desires of the flesh and it won't be that big a deal or anything like that. We know that's not true. That's a false belief. Or they feel guilty and they think to themselves, once I clean myself up, then I'll go back to church. That's not grace alone through faith alone. That's faith plus works. And that's a false doctrine. You know, we have this song that we sing around here. It's an old, old hymn, hundreds of years old that says, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Because I'm in pieces and my life is torn apart and I'm a mess. What can make me whole again? It's not pulling myself up. It's not piecing some things together and cleaning myself up. No, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so the chorus goes, oh, precious is the flow. The flow is the flow of God's blood being poured out on the cross. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. That means my record is cleansed. I have all this list of things that I've done rebelling against God, and the, this fount, no other fount I know. No other fount I know. Not the fount of half works, half Jesus. Not the fount of self-help. Not the fount of follow your heart. No other fount I know will make me white as snow, nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And listen, some of y'all need to finally believe it today. Don't clean yourself up. You've been fighting against that. Come to Jesus. He will clean you up. He makes you a new creation. Now, that's the passage. Let me show you how this plays out. The elders are in charge with, as I said in verse 9, refuting false doctrines. So let's talk about how we spot false doctrine. All right, I'm going to give you two hallmarks of false doctrine with our last few minutes. The first is that false doctrine adds to the gospel. We've seen this. Listen, Jesus plus anything, it's a false gospel. We do that a lot in the Bible Belt. 
a lot we add to the gospel. We got to look right, got to act, like, act right, got to dress right, clean yourself up, then God will clean you up. God helps those who help themselves. That is a false gospel. That's, listen, that's what Mormons believe. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. They've got laws that they've built to keep the wickedness out. And as long as they obey the laws, they obey the laws, they earn God's favor. That's a false gospel. Christianity is grace alone through faith alone. So if you want to add to it, you might as well go find another religion. Listen, Scientology, Mormonism, Islam, Jehovah's Witness, all these will say faith plus works, but not Christianity. And listen, I know the danger in saying this is it can sound maybe to some of you like I'm trying to preach, a, trying to preach cheap grace, but that's not the case at all. Well, cheap grace means like you can believe it without having to change anything. No, no, no. When you believe the gospel, everything in your life will change. But it won't be because you are cleaning yourself up to earn God's favor. It'll be because God is cleaning you up. His spirit's going to be in you. It's going to be convicting you of sin. It's going to be shaping you more into the person that he has created you to be. And you're going to find joy in that obedience. You're not going to find guilt and fear there. Here's the second hallmark of false doctrine. False teaching or false doctrine compromises with culture. Well, y'all, listen, this takes all kinds of forms. So you're going to have to know the gospel, the true gospel, in order to spot where teaching is compromising with culture. Let me give you some examples of false teaching that compromises with culture. The first that comes to mind to me right now in our day is the prosperity gospel. And this message compromises with culture because it, it, it plays on the desires and it, this, the desires that people have for personal wealth and gain. So it says if you sow a little seed of faith by sending $20 to this ministry, God will multiply that wealth back to you 10 times over. That's the culture pushing into the church, and it's a false teaching. There's the, there's the gospel, the message that gets peddled that says you should never have to suffer because there's a desire in our culture that we have to live an easy life, to never have to suffer. We want an easy and good life. There's a brand under the mask of Christianity out there that says any suffering you experience has something to do with a lack of faith on your part. That's the culture, that sin pushing into the church. The gospel is grace alone through faith alone. God doesn't say you won't suffer. He says the gospel guarantees that he will be right there with you in the midst of your suffering. He will give you the strength to endure it in a way that brings him glory, even if that ends in your death. There's the, the teaching that says, uh, we could call it the no hell gospel, that says, hey, God is love, right? God is love. Why would there be hell if God is love? Yes, God is love, but he is more than one character trait. And we know that the absence of hell means that sin doesn't matter, and that must mean all people go to heaven no matter what, which means God is accepting of all evil. That's the culture of relative truth pushing into the church. It's a false gospel. This one might be a little painful. 50 years ago, white evangelicals, by and large, sat out of the civil rights movement. Why? I don't mean to oversimplify it, but many sat out because it would have cost them a great deal of political power to stand with their black brothers and sisters. What happened? The culture, a desire for power, which became true in the moral majority of the 80s, a desire for power pushed into the church, and we're still experiencing the effects of it. How do we handle how do we handle false teaching? 
If false teaching has these two hallmarks, how do we handle it? Paul gives some pretty sharp language to what the elders are supposed to do and what we're all supposed to do when false teaching arises. Verses 11 and 13, he says, you got to rebuke it. That's the first thing, rebuke false teaching. That means giving a sharp critique to reveal what is false, to point to what is true, which means, by the way, our elder team has got to really know their stuff. This is why all of our elders, so you know, our church leaders are assessed in their theology and their knowledge of scripture, why they're not new Christians, but instead Christians who have walked with Christ for some time, because the church must be protected against false teaching. So here's how this works. If the elders are approached about someone stirring up controversy, disunity for disunity's sake, teaching false doctrine, the elders are reached out to and we sit down and try and work this out. Here's the other way we handle false teaching. We promote sound teaching, right? Sound teaching, this is biblical truth, rightly interpreted for us. Y'all, here's the, I'll give you the secret sauce to how we do sermons every weekend. We preach through the Bible, and then we take you to the cross and the empty tomb. That's the formula. Preach God's word, drive a, the way Charles Spurgeon used to talk about it, is you just plow a trough right to the cross, Every single time, because every passage of scripture either points to or reflects on the death and resurrection of Jesus. And as a church, we're going to be uncompromising in the essential doctrines of the faith. God created the world. Man sinned and separated himself from God. Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life. He died on the cross for our sins. Three days later, he rose from the grave. His death and resurrection is by God's grace alone. We are saved from our sins by faith in that message alone, nothing else. He ascended back to the right hand of the Father. One day he's coming back. Those are close-handed doctrines we will not compromise on ever. And so we teach it every week. We put it in our community groups every week. Here's why. Because the best way to spot a counterfeit is to become really familiar with the true thing. Right, it's the best. This is the way they teach federal agents to spot counterfeit money. They spend hours and, and weeks and months studying the, the real McCoy, studying the true currency, what, is, what the true thing is, the original, so that they know how to, how to see what is false. Let me say this, y'all. The, the one reason this right here, just being able to give you sound, this, our elders love teaching God's word to you. Every last one of them. They love doing it up here when they're preaching. They love doing it in one-on-one and community group, wherever they get the chance. They love doing it. We know preaching drives the church. My promise to you, anyone that stands up here on this stage to preach the gospel to you is gonna spend at least 20 hours preparing their message or maybe more. We're pretty intense on that because we know sound doctrine is so important and we love you. It is a joy. It's the greatest job on earth. I love it. It is a joy and that's... It's because of that great love for you that we are so devoted to the sound doctrine. So lastly, let me, uh, let me leave you with maybe a, a question. We've been doing this from time to time, a question for the car ride home. All right, everybody's got a little drive home of some kind. Here's a question for the car ride home for you. How committed am I, just to put yourself in there, to sitting under sound teaching? So I'm gonna talk first to the Christian, and then I'm gonna talk to you who is not a Christian yet because I recognize if you're not a Christian, you're trying to figure out how all this works out. Christian, if sound teaching is this important, and I'm not trying to shame you here, but if I'm asking, how important is it to you to sit under the sound teaching of your pastors? Let me say it this way. Do you build 
church around the rest of your schedule or the rest of your schedule around church. Again, that's not meant to condemn you. It's meant to help you look and reveal what's going on in your heart. Because I've often found those who aren't sitting under sound teaching are also not sitting under the Bible in their own personal lives as well. And there are incredible promises and great truth for you as we sit together in God's word and as you sit under it on your own day in and day out. And we talked a lot about that, not going that a lot more right here. But listen, if you're not a Christian, let me ask you to think through, through this question. It's going to sound a little deep, but I want you to think about it on the car ride home. Did God create me or did I create him? And I say it this way because I often hear people say something like, and this is usually a hallmark of believing, of the culture pushing into their belief. I'll hear them say, my God would never say that. Or my God would never ask me to do that. And my challenge to you is that if God never asks you to do anything you wouldn't do anyways, he didn't create you, you created him. And if you believe God created you though, then the next step is, if, you, if you're willing to say, actually, I believe God created me, so what does that mean? Well, the next step means, what does he say about your life? And this is where Christianity, I believe, has the best answer. Everybody believes something. Everybody has a worldview. Everybody has a lens through which they believe the, the reasons why the world works the way it does, what's gonna happen when you die. Everybody has a belief about that. And I believe the Christian message is the best one. It's not only the most logical and reasonable, it's the most inclusive and the most gracious of any worldview out there. And the gospel says God loves you. We've been saying this a lot recently. Not only does he love you, he created you. He created you to know him, to walk with him for all of your life and for eternity. John 10.10, like we said, for you to have abundant life. That is a here and now promise and a forevermore promise. He loves you and he wants you. He wants you to know him. It is good for you because you're created for his love to finally satisfy your soul. You're created for that. He loves you and he wants you and he offers you that love. And he comes and he says, I know you think you're okay over on this side of the fence, but that will never save you. That's a lie. No, only, only my grace can save you, but I'm giving it to you. I'm giving it to you. And all you have to do, don't clean yourself up. All you have to do is receive it. Receive this grace I'm offering you, forgiveness from your sins, life forevermore. It can be yours today, today.